guys aren't familiar with your Bible, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So if in your Old Testament you're in the wrong place, um, so go toward the back more and get to the New Testament. First book is Matthew. Looking at chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken through Christ, that you desired to condescend to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and that he taught us so effectively on prayer, that you continued to work that out, Lord, in your apostles by the power of your Spirit, and that we have, not only through the prophets of the Old Testament and the wise saints in the Old Testament, but also from your very Son, and from the work or through the work of your spirit and your apostles, we have a clear testimony of what it means to pray, how we pray. Lord, in the nearness that we're able to have with you as a transcendent, holy, great, completely other God, because of this invitation to prayer that is accomplished through your Son's work for us and through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think that we often believe that the gospel needs most to be preached to what we, would might, cons- we might consider the real sinners out there, right? The types who are irreligious, who blatantly live in sin. We think, man, that person needs the gospel. And it's true, they need to hear the gospel. That's true. But no less do the religious, church-going professors of faith in Jesus Christ, no less do they need to hear the gospel. Every woman and every man needs to be brought, I want you to hear this, every woman and every man needs to be brought to the end of themselves and realize that our only hope is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. When I was a youth pastor, I was often accused of not making 
the students feel good enough about themselves. It's, a, it's an accusation I got several times, and uh, here's how it went. They, they said this, you make them feel small and unworthy. You should be building them up and making them feel good about themselves. Tell them that God loves them because they're good kids and they need to hear that. And I would generally respond this way. Well, if the students feel small and unworthy, then I'm accomplishing what I hope to accomplish. I want them to know that God loves them because he's good, not because they're good. God loves them while they're sinners. And when they grasp that, they won't have a perverted view of their own righteousness or think that their lack of goodness will somehow cost them God's love in the future. I wanted them to get a hold of that. It usually, that response usually fell on deaf ears. And as strong as my response sounds, I actually think I was pulling punches a bit. I actually think I was kind of coming at it a little bit weak. And here's why. I read John Gerstner, um, a story about him recently. He was a professor of theology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary years ago. And he was preaching in a church. And after his sermon, a woman came up to him and she held her finger and her thumb about a half inch apart. And she said this, Dr. Gerstner, you make me feel this big. And he responded, but madam, that is too big. That is much too big. Do you not know that that much self-righteousness will send you to hell? Now, that's a straightforward answer. Why do I start a sermon on prayer, a sermon on prayer, in fact, a series on prayer with this opening illustration. You know why I start there? Because Jesus did. Jesus started there. Jesus knew that the primary problem with God's people was that they were self-righteous, self-exalting, and self-centered they wanted, to be, they wanted to be believed that they were in fact good enough and they wanted others to think well of them. Jesus knew that their self-righteousness, self-exaltation, and self-centeredness was the reason that they didn't pray rightly and thus kept seeing prayer going unanswered. They had exchanged the truth about God for the lie. They had exchanged the truth that God was holy and righteous and just and good and sovereign and gracious and merciful and loving. And that God alone, because He in Himself is all those things, He alone deserves glory. They had exchanged that for the lie that somehow we deserve glory. That lie started in the garden, didn't it? When the serpent said to Adam and Eve, you can be like God. And they'd exchange the truth about him for a lie. And when we do that, 
when we start to think that we deserve and we become self-centered and self-righteous, we start to think we're good. We have whole movements dedicated to the celebration of our goodness, like the self-esteem movement. We just believe in ourselves more. Whole branches of the Protestant church have gone off into an entire focus on believe in you. In Joel Osteen's language, discover the champion in you. Right? Discover the champion in you. That is not what Jesus says to anybody, is it? We have whole movements going there. And what Jesus knew, what Jesus knew was that that focus is idolatry. That focus on self is idolatry. That's why James actually responds as to why our prayers are going unanswered. In James chapter 4, just listen to what he says. He's answering why our prayers often go unanswered. And he says it's because of idolatry. Here's what he says. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive. Why? Why do you ask and not receive? Because you ask wrongly. And how is that? To spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. In other words, what James says, by adultery, that's a parallel in Scripture with idolatry because God is the husband of his church or his people. And so whenever he talks about spiritual adultery, that's like idolatry. It's a parallel. It's cheating on him for some other God. And in our case, it's us. So what James is saying is this. Even when you pray, you demonstrate your idolatry. Even when you pray, think of that. Even when you pray, you would think at that point I'm praying. This is the one point in my life when I'm demonstrating I'm not self-centered and self-righteous and self-sufficient and self-exalting. I'm praying. And James says, no, even then you have the tendency to demonstrate your idolatry. So understanding this, let me show you how Jesus comes at this self-centered, self-righteous, self-exalting idolatry in the Sermon on the Mount, because he does in the Sermon on the Mount. So look first at Matthew chapter 5, and I'll just give you a brief outline of this. Matthew 5. This sermon goes actually for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It starts in verse 1, and at the end of of chapter 7, he gives us a a summary of the audience. So here's the audience. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus sees the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And you'll wonder, well, why does Jesus sit down? It is actually normal in that period of time for teachers to sit, not to stand. So in in that point, you would sit. And so Jesus sits up on the mount, and he's sitting down, and his disciples are sitting below him. This actually, this area has very good acoustics, and so lots of people can hear. You would think it's just his disciples, but it's not. Lots of people hear. His disciples, however, are his primary audience here. He's teaching believers here. But look, he has a secondary audience. If you look at the end of chapter 7 in verse 28, it says this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In other words, Jesus sits down on the mount. 
he gathers his disciples to himself and he begins to teach them. And as he's teaching his disciples beyond them, the crowds have gathered and they're also hearing this teaching. They're also hearing it. And how does he start off this sermon, this great sermon that people love to read? I think if people read it rightly, they wouldn't love it so much. I think it's great, but unbelievers even talk about the Sermon on the Mount being this great sermon. And I'm not sure the unbelievers are paying attention to what he's saying here. Because what he's saying is pretty strong. First thing he says, verse 2, And he opened his mouth and taught them. It's interesting emphasis, right? Opened his mouth and taught them. Anyways, just a side note. Saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. I'm spiritually poor. I can do nothing to please God. Who are blessed or happy in this case? That word could also be translated happy. Who are those who are happy or blessed? Those who recognize they're spiritually bankrupt. Not those who think they're good. Next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who are those who are blessed or happy? The mourners. That's kind of like a contrast, isn't it? Happy are those who mourn. Why? What are they mourning about? They're mourning over their sin. They're mourning over their state of separation from God. And what does he say? They will be comforted. Jesus is making a very clear statement and on through the Beatitudes about the condition of the heart or the character of a true disciple. A true disciple has this kind of character. This is what it looks like. He knows he's spiritually bankrupt. He mourns over his sin. Mourns over it. He goes on and he says, I I want you to know how serious I am about the character of a disciple. He says this in verse 20. For I tell you, now here he's going right at the Pharisees. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, that's your goodness, unless your righteousness or goodness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You hear that statement? Who are the scribes and Pharisees? The scribes are the keepers of the law. These are the guys who were writing down the Bible meticulously, copying it, keeping information, or keeping copies of it. These guys know the law. They know the word inside and out. The Pharisees are a group of guys I'm going to describe a little bit later. But for now, let me just say this. They're a holiness movement. These are the guys who keep the law in all of its externals as perfectly as anyone ever kept it. And Jesus says to the crowds, now listen to this, to the crowds and to the people, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are the disciples and the crowds thinking right now? There's no way. My righteousness will never exceed theirs. It's impossible. Those guys pray three hours a day on average. How is my righteousness ever going to exceed that? As a side note, he takes a shot directly at the Pharisees, doesn't he? Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never get in the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying about them? Theirs isn't sufficient to get into the kingdom of heaven. 
And what Jesus is coming after directly is a self-righteousness in us that somehow we think that even this much righteousness will please God, and it won't. You have to be 100% sinlessly righteous or you can't please God. Thus, the need for Jesus Christ. What Jesus is doing here is not establishing how great we all are and giving us nice parables, little statements, or proverbs, I should say, to live by. It's not what he's doing. What he's doing is demonstrating conclusively our need for him. It's what he's doing. And he's saying that a character of a true disciple is, looks like this. Someone who recognizes they need me. And they live accordingly. That's what their character looks like. But then he goes on and says this. I'm not just concerned about your character. External, I mean, as far as what's being developed, I'm also concerned about how your character then works itself out in religious devotion. So first he deals with internal character issues. Then he deals with how it works itself out in devotion. Look at chapter 6. He's been talking about righteousness, remember, and the kind of righteousness that you ought to have those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Isn't that an interesting change? Instead of talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness and your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's no longer talking about your internal righteousness now. He's saying beware of practicing your righteousness. Now I'm talking about your religious devotion. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now listen, he's not, he is not forbidding or condemning religious devotion, is he? In fact, he's assuming it and encouraging it. He's saying you should be practicing your righteousness. Even you should be practicing your righteousness before other people. How do I know that? Because in Matthew 5.17, look what he says. Jesus said, or not 5.17, I'm sorry. Go back to 5.12.13, actually move there. You are the salt of the world, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that what? They may see your good works. Now, here's the key. You want your light to shine before others. You want them to see your good works. Why? And give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Do you hear that? Notice when he says in one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He doesn't, he, or he assumes here that when we're practicing our righteousness before others in religious devotion, we're often doing it to be seen by them. It's one thing to do good works in front of other people to be seen by them so they give glory to God. It's another thing to do righteous works in front of people just to be seen by them so that they think well of us. It's a differentiation Jesus is making. 
just so they think, wow, there's a righteous man. It's a matter of motivation. Our motivation should be God's glory, as it says in Matthew 5.16, not our own glory. How do I know that that's what these guys are looking at, what he means by seen by them? And because in Matthew 6, Jesus is suggesting that men are practicing religious devotion in front of others, not for God's glory, but for their own. In fact, he talks about it under three types of religious devotion. Listen how clear this is, that that's what they're practicing it for. That's what he's talking about. Verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, give to the needy. Why? Because the Pharisees were giving to the needy like crazy. They were religiously devout. They gave to the needy. When he says this, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Right? Can you imagine this? It, look, he goes on, he says, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. Now he's talking about the Pharisees and calling them hypocrites. That they may be what? Praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not like be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Go down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. They actually make themselves look worse so that people see their fasting. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What Jesus is getting at is not that you're not supposed to practice works of righteousness or religious devotion. Of course you're supposed to. And it's not even that you're not supposed to do religious devotion in front of people. It requires, in order to have corporate worship, for you to demonstrate religious devotion in front of people, doesn't it? Jesus demonstrated religious devotion in front of people. The apostles did. That was never what was condemned. What was condemned or what's being condemned is this kind of religious devotion where you have to have it known by people that you're devoted to God. I.e., when you give to the needy, someone needs to blow a trumpet in front of you and say, here comes the guy giving to the needy. That's what the Pharisees actually did. They wanted everyone to know, look at me. I've given. I'm generous. Look. Look. This is like in contemporary culture, the guys who want to give to the church, but they want a stone in the church that has their family name on it, right? Or name the building after me. So that everyone knows who gave that money. Well, we don't blow trumpets. We just name buildings and put out, you know, stones, don't we? Or um, if you go on when he talks about praying and he says, don't pray, you know, stand up in the street corners. Jesus, again, these guys would walk down the street and they prayed three times a day, usually morning, evening, morning, noon time and evening. And what they would do is they'd be walking down the street, the time for prayer would hit, and they would stand up wherever they were on the corners and just start shouting out their prayers so that everyone could see what a devoted man they are. 
or when they fasted, rather than just fasting that day and not eating and learning self-discipline and devotion to the Lord, rather than doing that, they would actually make themselves, they would mark themselves up to make themselves look worse so people are like, oh, he's fasting. What a godly man. This is what they did. And Jesus is coming after it. Well, what we're going to talk about in this series is the second type of religious hypocrisy. The second type. The second type of religious devotion, which is prayer. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about giving. In fact, that's probably all we're going to spend, just what I just did. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about fasting. In fact, that's probably it. We're going to talk about prayer. And what I want to get at today, if you haven't figured it out, is that prayer must be properly motivated. It should not be motivated by self-exaltation, self-righteousness, and self-centeredness. Prayer that is received by God is motivated by a desire to commune with our Father and to receive what we need from Him. In other words, because our prayer looks to Him and trusts Him, prayer that is received is God-exalting and God-centered. So let's look first at self-exalting, self-righteous prayer versus God-exalting prayer. Matthew 6, 5, look there. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus starts off by teaching how not to pray, right? When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Let's just start off there. Don't be like them. And he's taking a direct shot at the Pharisees when he talks about the hypocrites. Everybody knew who stood on the street corners, who blew the trumpets before they gave, who stood up in the synagogue, and who disfigured their faces when they were fasting. Everyone who's Jesus' audience knows who Jesus is talking about. And he says, don't pray like those guys, your religious leaders. Don't pray like them. And in a sense, don't pray like your pastors do. The guys who lead your church do. Don't pray like them. Can you imagine how shocking that would have been to the people? What do you mean? Those are the most righteous men we know. Yeah, don't pray like those guys. They're hypocrites. And look at what he says. They love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Look, Pharisees were the conservative Bible believers of the day. They started out as a holiness movement during the intertestamental period. If you guys don't know what the intertestamental period is, basically the last book of the Old Testament was written about four to 500 A.D. That's called Malachi. About four to 500 years later, Jesus is born. In approximately four to six B.C., Jesus is born. And when he's born, from there we start getting records again of the new, we call the New Testament. So we had the Old Testament, and then we had about a four to 500 year period of silence, and now we have the New Testament, starting at Jesus' birth and going forward. 
During that period of silence, it's called the intertestamental period. And the Jews were conquered for a while um, by a, a group, and then they tried to do several revolts. And you can read about those in a book that the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church actually keeps in their Bible called um, the First and Second Maccabees. It's all in the, what is typically called the apocryphal books. What happens is, is that during that time period, there was a holiness movement. Why? The holiness movement started because a lot of the Jews were essentially, essentially conforming to Roman and Greek culture. They were um, selling out, as we might say. They were wanting to be like the world. They were kind of what you might call the very commercialized, seeker-sensitive kind of believers at the time, right? They wanted to be well accepted by others, especially Rome, for their own protection. And the Pharisees were angry about this. Why? Because the Pharisees believed the Bible. They watched a group called the Sadducees sell out to the Roman Empire and they were ticked. Who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the religious, were the true religious leaders. They actually had the positions of authority in what was called the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. They had all the power in the Sanhedrin. And the Sadducees actually only believed the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. That's all they believed. They denied the rest of the Old Testament. The Sadducees did. They denied the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they're sad, you see, right? So the, the joke, that's how you remember the rest of it. There's no resurrection. That'd make you sad, wouldn't it? So anyways, they denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied the supernatural. In a sense, the Sadducees who were ruling in Israel at the time were religious liberals. And the religious, Bible-believing conservatives came to the rescue, the Pharisees. Thank God they rose up. We're always hard on them. But they're actually the group who believed that the whole Testament was true from beginning to end, who believed in angels and the supernatural. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They were waiting for the coming Messiah. They were extremely devout religiously. They prayed three hours a day, usually broken over three different times. They gave vigorously to the poor and to the temple. They kept the law. They hated the government corruption of the day. And they hated the corruption that was happening to the church. Seem like pretty decent guys, don't they? What we need to realize is that it was normal to pray in the synagogue standing up. That was actually normal. So it wasn't weird for the Pharisees to do that. In fact, it was even normal to stand on street corners and pray. That's not even what Jesus is coming after. What is condemning is their hypocrisy. What does he mean here? These men love to pray when others were watching and seeing how righteous they are. But they weren't really loving to pray in secret when people didn't know. They love to give when others saw how righteous they are. They loved to fast when others saw, but they wouldn't do it privately 
on their own. They were hypocrites. What does the word hypocrite mean? In Greek, that, that term um, for hypocrite comes from a Greek term, which, or is a Greek term, which actually was used um, during that time uh, and prior to that for play actors in the theater. It was a word that was used with regard to the theater. People would put on a mask. And it wasn't a negative term or a derogatory term. They would put on a mask because they were playing a character. When they put on the mask, they were called a hypocrite. They were putting on a show, but that really wasn't who they are. Jesus then took that term and used it derogatorily. And he said, your Pharisees, those conservative Bible-believing churchgoers, the ones who hate the corruption of the government the one and the church, the ones who despise those who don't keep the law, the ones who give regularly and care for the poor and pray three hours a day and read the Word and believe in the resurrection, those guys are hypocrites. Those guys are putting on a show for you. They don't really love the Lord. They love the adoration they're getting from you. How are they getting adoration from them? Because the Sadducees, the liberals who were actually ruling, weren't popular with the people. The Pharisees were. The Pharisees were enormously popular with the people. And so they ran the government of Israel, in a sense, by sheer popularity. The Sadducees could not often go against them. Even though the Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other, they couldn't often go against them because they were so popular with the people. That's why it's amazing, by the way, when you see the Pharisees and Sadducees get together to come after Jesus, especially the Herodians and the Pharisees that hated each other. They get together to kill Jesus. Astounding development culturally at the time. But the Pharisees are popular. And what Jesus is saying is, those guys, they're not really devoted. They're hypocrites. They do this because they love the praise of the people. That's why they do it. They don't care what God thinks, is what Jesus is saying. If they did, they would pray in private where no one sees them. He's not saying they wouldn't pray publicly. What he's saying is this, their private prayer would be just as fervent as their public prayer. But it's not because they're hypocrites. They don't care what Jesus or what the Father thinks. They care what other people think. So this brings me to a question. Do you pray in secret where no man can see? In other words, do you pray for the purpose of communing with the Lord and glorifying Him? Or do you mostly pray so others might notice? See, I had to confront this question a few weeks ago, and sometimes I think that this question is peculiar to leaders in the church. I think I honestly pray more fervently in public than I do privately. I would wonder from our worship team whether they sing to the Lord as fervently, privately as they do in front of you all. 
would ask, do I preach the gospel and the word to myself privately as fervently as I do in front of you? And the answer is no, I don't generally. And when I realized that, I realized Jesus is talking about me when he's talking about these Pharisees. He's talking about me. You hypocrite. You parade around and show your righteousness before others because you want to be seen by them. But you don't care what I think because in private, you're not that interested. Look, for me to stand up here and wax eloquent while I pray and not to pray with the same passion and depth in private is to demonstrate that I care more about making an impression on you than I do the Lord. You might respond, but I don't pray out loud, so that's not my problem, right? Because I don't even do it. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Is the longest stretch of time when you pray, the longest stretch of time when you pray on any individual basis during the week, shorter than the amount of time we spend in prayer in the service together? Or than maybe you do in your small group? Why? Let every man examine himself. Or for those of you who come to pray with us on Sunday morning in corporate prayer in there, which I'm asking you all to do, 9.15. When you pray with us, do you pray like that at home? On your own? Why not? Is it because you're less interested in communing with God and honoring Him than you are in communing with other believers and looking good in front of them? Let every man examine himself. Or how about this? Do you ever hope someone will catch you praying or someone will find out about it so you'll look good? I, I know I have. I've prayed and thought, I hope Teresa walks in and sees this. I'm not going to lie to you. I constantly want to be caught doing righteous things so people will think well of me. How do I know that? Because I remember multiple times in marriage seeing that the trash needed to be emptied and the dishwasher needed to be, you know, done. And I thought to myself, okay, I'll do that, but I'm going to wait till she's home to see it, right? So she will know how much I'm interested in serving her, right? When actually what I was interested in doing was what? Getting some sort of exaltation from her, her seeing of me, look at what a great husband I have. I wasn't interested in pleasing her. I was interested in exalting me. And as Jesus said, when others see my righteous works, when others see my righteous works, I got my reward. You hear that? What does he say? When you, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What's their reward? They were seen by others. That's it. They got it. That's what they wanted, and they got it. When they gave to the poor, they wanted to be seen by others. 
That's the reward they were looking for. That's the reward they're going to get. That's all the reward they're going to get. When they fasted and let people know about it because they wanted people to think well of them, they got the reward. When they prayed fervently and let people know, not because they were saying, I'm praying for you in this and I want to encourage you, but because they wanted those people to think well of them, they got their reward. And that's all their reward they're getting. And we miss out on a much greater reward. Let me be clear about this. Conservative evangelicals, that's you and me. Conservative evangelicals can be some of the grandest hypocrites in all the world. And all the world knows it. Now you might not be one of these conservative evangelicals and you might be thinking, yes, someone finally gave it to those hypocrites. I knew all along they were hypocrites. I was saying they're phonies. And someone finally, finally said what needed to be said about them. Well, I'm not done. Because if I'm going to preach like Jesus, then I have to be an equal opportunity sort of preacher. So I'm not just going to deal with the religious hypocrites. I'm going to deal with the irreligious types as well, as Jesus does. Perhaps you don't have a committed life of prayer, either privately or publicly. So in your case, prayer is not ever a show of self-righteousness because prayer is not ever now, you might say, oh, okay, I do pray occasionally. I, you know, I shoot up a prayer to the big guy in the sky, the man upstairs, right? The genie in a bottle for my personally, the cosmic Santa Claus. I can't occasionally throw him a little request. But you're sen- essentially irreligious when it comes to devoting yourself to the Lord on a regular basis. No self-devotion to the Lord, no devotion to the Lord. You may even be a Christian like me and still suffer from this problem. Because what I'm talking about here is self-centered prayer rather than God-centered prayer. Not only am I not interested in exalting God, but there's a whole group of, just myself, there's a whole group of people who aren't interested in what God wants. They're interested in what they want. They're self-centered. It's all of us, by the way. Look at what Jesus says. Self-centered prayer, verse 7. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What's He talking about? Well, the Gentiles are everyone who was not a Jew. That's the Gentiles. They're pagans. They were people who were considered irreligious because they worshipped all sorts of gods, a whole pantheon of gods. They would be like... Many out there, even in the church, who have some perverted idea of who God is and who think God God exists to serve themselves. Their lives, they they might state it that way. They're never going to say, yeah, I think God exists to serve me. But their lives reflect it. How? They don't walk with God, but they expect Him to be near when they have a need. They don't obey him, but they expect him to bail them out whenever they receive bad consequences for their behavior. They don't acknowledge God, but they expect him to provide something whenever they ask for it. They don't worship God, but they expect 
him to reward them with eternal life. They don't proclaim God's name, serve God's church, help God's people, but they expect God to provide what they want, when they want, and how they want it. They kind of have the Burger King idea of God. I'll have it my way every time, right? Please don't think I'm suggesting that this is the attitude of others and not me. Because at times this is my attitude. In fact, it's the attitude of all who are self-centered. And that's all of us. So what the Gentiles thought was that God could be manipulated in some way. That's what they thought. And what we think. God can in some way be manipulated. If I rub the bottle enough, the genie will pop out and give me what I want. And this is how we do it. If I just pray enough, if I say enough words and go on for long enough, and that's why he uses the word babble here. You know, they're babbling on. Why is that? That's a, have you guys ever heard of an onomatopoeia? Anybody? It's a word that sounds like, it's a word that's named, you know, it sounds like it is. So were they called um, the barbarians in Romans 1? They called them barbarians. Why? Because when they heard them speak, what they heard, what the Jews thought they heard when they would hear the barbarians speak is bar, 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 right? So they called them barbarians. They thought they were babbling on like idiots. So Jesus is saying, don't babble on like a bunch of idiots like the Gentiles do. It's nice. He's just saying essentially they're just heaping words one on top of another, thinking that somehow if they do that, God will hear them. Like he can be manipulated. If I just get the right formula, he'll answer. If I just pray enough, he'll answer. We start to think there's some kind of technique and don't think you're not guilty of this, of thinking if I can just get the right prayer technique, maybe then God will answer. I could sell millions of books if I said, here is the technique by which God will answer your prayers. It's five easy steps to prayer answered. And people would buy them. They'd fly off the shelves. Why? Assuming I wrote it halfway interesting. Why? Because they want a technique. We're all that way. Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to pray a long time or to repeat the same prayer. In fact, in Luke 18, he actually says, he encourages praying a long time and repeating the same prayer, coming back day after day and asking God for the same thing. What he's saying is that if we come back several times and pray long and think that all of that is going to somehow provoke or make God have to answer our prayers, we're wrong. That's not a technique by wh- whereby God does what you want. He isn't at your bidding if you just learn to knock properly. We all do it. I, I remember, here's, here was my technique as a kid. God, I will never do this again if you'll just do this. Anybody else guilty of that? Just me. Praying like a pagan. Trying to manipulate God. There's a great story about two great evangelists who led the Great Awakening in the 1700s. Two of them. One was named George Whitfield, and one is named John Wesley. There was also Jonathan Edwards and some other guys involved, but I want to talk about these two because they traveled together, and there's a great story about the two of them. George Whitfield and John Wesley, at one point in their ministry, would preach during the day together. 
they would preach. And they were at odds at cert- over certain theological issues. And I'm going to sum up their odd this way. And I'm going to odds. And I'm going to paraphrase what I say a little bit based on that. I'll paraphrase the story. George Whitfield had a very high view of the sovereign grace of God. John Wesley had a very high view of the free will of man. And that was a distinction they had. George Whitfield still believed in free will. And, you know, John Wesley still believed in sovereignty and grace. But they had different ideas of what that was. And they would preach together, and at one point, um, they would even bunk together at night. So one day, they were having a really strenuous day. Now, these are guys who preached multiple sermons in a day, seven days a week. These guys are, are insane preachers, probably average up to three to five sermons per day, seven days per week, traveling on horseback from town to town, thousands of people coming out, thousands more than the population of the city at times would come because all the rural areas would come in and they would preach and they were unaided by sound equipment like we have. Think about how exhausting that would be to preach five hours a day in front of thousands upon thousands of people traveling from on horseback from place to place with no amplification help. Be worn out. So they'd go to bed at night and when they went to bed, They would each, every night, kneel by their beds to pray. And the first evening that that happened, um, George Whitfield got on his knees and prayed like this. He said, this is his prayer. Lord, we thank thee for all those with whom we spoke today. And we rejoice that their lives and destinies are entirely in thy hand. Honor our efforts according to thy perfect will. Amen. And Whitfield got up and got into bed. As he got up and got into bed, Wesley, who had hardly gotten past the beginning of his prayer, looked up from the side of his bed and said this, Mr. Whitfield, is this where your radical view of God's sovereign grace has led you? Then he put his head down and went on praying. And Whitfield, unfazed, stayed in bed and went to sleep. (laughs) About two hours later, Whitfield woke up. And amazingly, there was Wesley still on his knees praying beside the bed. So Whitfield got up and went around to where Wesley was kneeling. And when he got there, he found Wesley asleep. And so Whitfield tapped him on the shoulder, tugged him and woke him up and said this to him. Is this where your radical view of man's free will has led you? And went back to bed. The point is that Wesley's prayer life was certainly noble. However, it was often driven by the idea that he needed to continue on at length for God to work. We do these things because we believe we have to manipulate God in some way to get an answer to prayer. Maybe I can manipulate him with the length of time I spend or with the great vocabulary I use or with the guarantees I make if he'll just keep just answer my prayer. Maybe I can find some way to get what I want out of him. See, we don't really want to relate to him the way we should. We just want something from him. And because it's ultimately driven by our perverted view of him. In fact, Jesus goes on to say this in Matthew 6, 8. Look what he says. Do not be like them. Who? The Gentiles. For your father. Listen to that word. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Did you hear that? Jesus just explained that God is our father. 
And that as our Father, He wants to provide for us. We don't have to manipulate Him. Not to use crazy techniques to get at Him. He is our Father. He wants to provide for us. Look at what He says in Matthew 7. Jesus talks about this a little bit more. Verse 7. Read this quickly. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? How much more? If I can give good gifts, I know how to give good gifts to my son. If when my son says, Dad, can I have a fish? And reaches out his hand for the fish. If I know better as an evil person not to slap a serpent into his hand. I know better than that. How much more does my Father in heaven who's good and holy and righteous, how much more does he know how to give me good gifts than I do for my son and I'm a wicked man? The problem for us in prayer is that our motives are driven by self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-exaltation rather than by a desire to commune with our Father. God is the sovereign king of all things. And while he sits on the throne of heaven, ruling over everything, at the same time, he's our father. Think of that. The word Jesus use of, uh, is, uses here is um, also picked up by Paul, that word Abba. It doesn't really mean daddy. That's a little bit too familiar. Its proper translation is a little more familiar than father, though. It's probably something more like dad. In other words, think of this. The king of the universe, you can go before his throne and say, Dad, Dad, I need your help with this. You own all things. Can you help me with this, Dad? And you know what he says? Of course, son. Of course, I desire to give you good gifts. Of course I can. Dad, I just want to be with you. And I want you to take care of my needs. Can you do it? Of course I can. Of course I can. You're my son. Of course, I want to give you good gifts. I want to commune with you. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's our problem. We don't come to him that way. We come to him like he's someone to manipulate, to get something out of, or for our own exaltation. He's our father because of what Jesus did, which I'll talk about on Christmas um, at the, on the 21st. I'll talk more about that. But he's our father because of what Jesus did. And we're in Christ through faith. And as a result, he treats us like he treats his own son. He's adopted us into the family. And as sons, we're co-heirs, which means God is for us. You hear that? God is is for us. Can you hear better news than that? The king of the universe wants to be your dad and wants to commune with you 
and desires to give you good gifts. Can you think of anything better than that? God, our Father, is more ready to give than we are to receive. More ready to give than we are to receive. Thus, we should pray so we can commune with our dad and so we can receive what we need from him. He knows what it is and he wants to give it to us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for how powerfully you speak to us through Christ in your word. We pray that we would be devoted to you, our Father in heaven, that we would recognize you as the sovereign king and also our father, our dad, because of the work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And we would not come before you trying to manipulate you for our own ends, thinking that somehow you as our father don't know what we need and don't want to provide it. And Lord, that we would not come before you as a public show so that somehow people think that we are righteous. Lord, that we would come before you not as a demonstration of our self-righteousness or our self-centeredness, but as a demonstration of our love for you, our devotion to you, our commitment to you, our desire to commune with you and to trust you to give us all things that you want to give us. For the praise of your glorious Son. Amen. Hey, go as long as We'll be having communion to this morning. Guys would come. Communion is for believers this morning. If you are not